Okay, Mark chapter number one, we're, we're concluding our gospel clarity series. And, and I know uh, on Wednesday nights, it, it might feel a little bit like, man, why are we talking about the gospel on Wednesday night? Shouldn't this be like a Sunday morning type series? It, well, it would, it would certainly make sense on a Sunday morning. But I, I would contend that my heart behind this makes sense on a Wednesday night too. Because I understand that the purpose of this service is not necessarily evangelism. I get that. Um, now, you might be surprised by how many people have heard the gospel on a Wednesday night and gotten saved. So I never take for granted that every single person that comes in on a midweek knows the Lord. So, so that is a, a, a part of it. But my heart behind this series has more to do with Christians that have already believed in the gospel and need to know a couple of things. Number one, how you can continue to live every day in the gospel. And, and, and it's like your fuel for serving Jesus. And, and, and so I want you to understand and get that. The more you understand the gospel, the deeper the understanding of the gospel for you, um, the more love you have for it, the greater service you have for the king. And, and, and actually the greater joy you have in service for the king. And then I want you to understand how to have an even clearer and deeper approach to sharing the gospel with others. I certainly don't mind, you know, kind of a Romans road technique so long as it covers the basis of what the gospel is. But not every single person we share the gospel with is, it's not like a cookie cutter technique. Like people have different struggles and different backgrounds and different fears and different abilities to retain what you're saying. And so the Romans road six or seven verses doesn't work for everybody. Sometimes we, we need to deepen understanding of the gospel so that we can deal with a variety of different situations that, that God might bring our way by way of divine appointment. So that's why we're doing this. That's why we've done this. And, and, and I wanted you to kind of have my heart or at least remind you of that. Now, we, we have um, outlined four crucial truths that I think sum up the gospel message. It's God, man, Christ, response. Would you say those out loud with me? God, man, Christ response. Number one, God's our creator. Because he's our creator, we are accountable to him. Okay. And that's not, that's, that's very fair, right? Very, very fair. Number two, man has sinned against God. Okay. We have failed to submit to our creator to whom we're accountable. And there's a price to pay for that. Listen, when you are sharing the gospel, people have, they have got to recognize and feel the depravity of their soul. You get that? A lot of times we, we want to like skip over our sin. And just because we don't, we, well, the gospel is the good news. You just got to tell them Jesus loves them and dies for them. And just believe in them and pray and ask them to your heart and he'll save you. But, but listen, what, they got to know what Jesus is saving them from. Okay. We need to have a brokenness about the fact that we have rebelled against the king of kings. Against the God of the universe that created us. And it's our brokenness that draws us to the Savior. Number three, Christ has paid for our sin on the cross. He's made it possible for us to be right with God. And now number four, we have the last truth, which is the response. How does a person get in on this salvation? How do we respond in order to get saved? Mark chapter one, verse 15. Jesus is talking. He's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That command, repent and believe, 
is what God requires of us in response to the good news of Jesus. This response isn't just found in Mark 1. It's also found in Acts 20 verse 21. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and repentance. In other words, a Christian, a genuine Christian, is one who turns away from his sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else to save him from his sin and the coming judgment that he deserves because of his sin. So I want to press into those two things for the next few minutes tonight. Faith and repentance. Let's start by talking about faith. Roman numeral number one, you must come to God in faith. You must come to God in faith. You don't get to come to God any other way and be saved. The word faith is used and thrown around in a lot of different ways. So what exactly is saving faith? Letter A, as you see, it is reliance. Reliance. If you were to ask someone on the street to describe faith, it might boil down to something like this. Belief in the ridiculous against all evidence. In other words, believe whatever you want, even if what you believe is disconnected from reality. A good example of that is one particular year at the Macy's Day Parade on Thanksgiving. My wife grew up watching the Macy's Day Parade every single year. I have not watched but one of them. It was at her house. How many watched the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Day Parade thing? Okay. So I'm outnumbered a little bit. The theme was believe. And featured in a prominent area where everyone could see what, they, what, what, what it was, it was, was this thing called the believometer. The believometer. So every time a new float came by or a band played or dancers danced in their elf costumes, the needle on the believometer bounced a little higher, higher. The highlight of the parade was when Santa Claus himself rode in with his sleigh fashioned in the shape of a majestic goose. And the believometer went wild. If you were to gauge by the music, the dancing, the confetti, the screaming kids, and yes, the screaming adults. If you didn't know any better, you'd think that these people really believe in Santa Claus. And that he really does ride on a goose-shaped sleigh. In some ways, that's what the world thinks of faith. Believe in whatever you want, even if it has no connection to the actual world. I'm sorry, there are kids in here, and if you have to explain to them that Santa Claus is not real, then you finally have to tell them the truth. I'm sorry. I'll let that sink in. Now, kids believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, but adults do the same thing. Mystics believe in the power of stones and crystals. Crazy people believe in fairies. And Christians, well... They believe in Jesus. But the world sees Jesus as though just on the same level of people that believe in Santa Claus. Just pick what you want to believe in, even if it's disconnected from the actual world. But if you read the Bible, y'all find that the kind of faith that the Bible talks about is nothing like that at all. It's not believing in something crazy or random or disconnected from reality. Faith, as the Bible defines it, watch, is simply reliance. Greg Gilbert, a pastor and the author of the book, What is the Gospel? If you put a, if you have a reading list, you need to add this to your reading list. What is the Gospel? He tells a story 
of how he tried to get his son to jump into the deep end while he was there to catch him. His little boy just would not do it. He would go to the edge and then he would run to his mom. And so Greg took him to the shallow end where he just started splashing water on him. Get him used to the water. When he got comfortable with that, Greg taught him how to put his face down in the water and blow bubbles. And then he said, okay, he's ready. So he took him to the side of the pool. Greg got in the deep end and he said, jump to me, son. And he almost jumped and he ran back to his mommy. Finally, Greg tells the story of how his son got over there and he didn't jump into him, but he kind of flopped into his arms. And then he went back and he flopped into his arms again. And then he went back to the edge and he jumped a little bit more. And then he jumped a little bit more. And then he wanted to do it over and over and over to where he's basically flying into his dad's arms. It made Greg Gilbert and his wife really nervous. Because they said, he's so confident now that we got to keep an eye on him because he might think that he can jump into the deep end if I'm not there. And he's not ready for that. To their surprise though, their son never attempted to jump into the water on his own. Greg describes it this way. Despite all his apparent successes, my son's trust was never in his own ability to handle the water. It was in me. And it was in my promise to catch him if he jumped. That's a really good picture of saving faith being about reliance. Are you getting it? Trusting and relying on God to keep his promise to forgive us. A great biblical example of this kind of faith is when Paul talks about Abraham in Romans 4, verse 18 through 21. It says, who, talking about Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. That he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. That was God's promise. And being not weak in faith, he, Abraham, considering, considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. But was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. That's an amazing testimony of Father Abraham. Despite all that was working against God's promise, Abraham's age, his wife's age, her inability to have children. Despite all of that, the text says Abraham believed what God said. He trusted in God without wavering. He relied on God to accomplish his promise. Why? Here's why. Because he was fully convinced that God could do what God promised to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls the hearer to do the very same thing. To put our faith in Jesus. To rely on him. To to trust him. To jump into his arms, so to speak. As we trust him to do what he's promised to do. It's a great way to explain it to a lost person. But what exactly are we relying on God for? It's not like he's in the deep end ready to catch us. Well, here's what we're relying on him to do. Here's what we need him to do for us. Saving faith is for a righteous verdict. To put it simply, we're relying on him. This is so important and so good. We're relying on him to secure for us a righteous verdict from God, the judge, rather than a guilty one. Now, here's the deal. The Bible shows us that the greatest need of every person, including you and I, is to be found righteous in God's sight. Rather than condemned. So how then do we secure a righteous verdict? Well, the Bible makes it clear that it won't be by asking God to look at our own lives. Did you get me? 
We've already talked about this. If, if God is going to count, count us as righteous, he's going to have to do it on the basis of something other than our sinful record. He'll have to declare us righteous on the basis of someone else's record standing in as a substitute for us. That's where Jesus comes in. That's where our faith in Jesus' righteousness comes in. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When we put our faith in Jesus, watch, we're relying on him to stand as our substitute before God the Father. We're trusting that that God then will substitute Jesus' record for ours and declare us to be righteous, innocent, not guilty or condemned. Romans chapter 3, verse 22, look at it. I love this. Even the righteousness of God, how do we get it? Which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Praise the Lord for this last phrase, for there is no difference. Think of it like this. Everything that you've ever done against God has been recorded. If you're sharing the gospel with someone, trying to help them realize how how Jesus, the righteous one, stands in our place. This is an amazing illustration. Okay, imagine all your sin literally being written in the the books, in, in, in these books. I want you to imagine this gigantic bookshelf. And one entire bookshelf is designated to your sins. And all of us would probably need more than a bookshelf. Each book has your name on the cover and your sins on the inside. That's the content of the book. You're going to have to answer to God for these. However, when we trust Jesus to save us, we become united to him and this exchange takes place. At the cross, he took all of your pages out of your books and he destroyed them. And then he took those book covers with your name on them and he put in new pages. But no longer do those pages contain your sins. That's been destroyed. They contain Jesus' righteousness. God looks at, at those of us that have faith in Jesus. And instead of seeing our sinful record, he sees Jesus Christ's perfect record. And therefore declares us as innocent. As righteous, as justified. Does that do something for you tonight? Here's the implication. You, if it was up to you, you would be sentenced to hell. There's just too much evidence of our sin. And God will not allow that into his heaven. And so for us to... To, 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 to be glorified in heaven one day, we have to go through Jesus' righteousness. And aren't you thankful that he's already done everything that is required on the cross for you to have new pages in your book? It's amazing. Let her see. Saving faith is in Christ alone. When you realize just how dependent you are on Jesus for your salvation and his death for your sin, his life for your righteousness, you understand now, if you really grasp that truth, you understand why the Bible is so insistent that salvation comes only through him. You don't, you can't appreciate that unless you really understand how sinful you are. He is the only way. There's no other savior. 
Nothing in this world which we rely on for our salvation, including our own efforts, can make us right with God. Now, that rubs against every other religion. Biblical Christianity um, is, is, is set apart because it preaches and teaches that we are justified by faith alone. In fact, it's very human to think and even to insist that we contribute to our own salvation. You know why? Because we love our self-sufficiency. We're all such self-reliant people, aren't we? So much so that we, we resent any insinuation that, that, that we are what we are because of somebody else's intervention. We resist that. We are what we are because, because of our effort. Because of what we've done. Think about how you'd feel if, if, if someone said about your job or about your family or about your grades or about something you're proud of tonight. What if they came to you and said this? Yeah, you didn't even earn that. You only had that because someone gave it to you. You'd resent that. Because in your heart, naturally, you'd say, no, I have earned that. I have worked for that. I applied myself for this experience. Yet that's exactly the case if you have salvation. You did not earn it. It's given to us as a gift of grace. And we don't contribute anything at all. Not our own righteousness. Not our own payment for our sins. And certainly not any good works that somehow balance the account. Putting your faith in Christ means that you utterly renounce any other hope of being counted righteous before God. Faith means admitting that I am woefully insufficient to to, to secure a a righteous verdict from God and that that I've totally thrown myself onto Christ and what he's done for me. Please hear me. If you're already saved Christian, then you need to remind yourself often of what Jesus has done for you. This is why we have the Lord's Supper. We come apart as a church family to remember what he's done for us. That's why we should do it often and regular, as Paul implies. Because as Christians, we get so caught up with temporal things that we forget that we have been made righteous in God's sight through his son, Jesus. And that is a marvelous thing. It's a marvel. The gospel is amazing. But then if you're sharing the gospel, church, if you're sharing the gospel, you have to make sure that you don't rush somebody through this. Because they they need to understand that it's not Jesus plus something. Okay, they've got to get that. They've got to totally throw themselves and be willing to throw themselves on Jesus fully. Okay? They cannot be hanging on to little things on the side to make them right with God. And, 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 and in our community, with, with Roman Catholicism being so dominant, we're going to run into a lot of co-workers and family members that have been taught totally opposite of what we preach when it comes to salvation. Justified by faith alone. That means that we're going to have to be patient. And loving, clear with the scripture, but let the Holy Spirit convince them that it's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen?
All right, let's, let's go to the second point. You must come to God in repentance. Letter A, repentance from sin is essential to believing in Christ. You can write down these references. I don't know if they're in your handout, but Acts 3.19, Acts 26.20. I don't think they'll be on the screen, but Peter said, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Paul told the people they should repent and turn to God. That's what the word repent means. It means to, to turn. In the Bible, it specifically refers to turning from sin. So when we come to God for salvation, when we put our hope in the message of the gospel, we're turning from sin and turning to Christ. I want you to get this. Repentance is not just an optional plug-in. It's absolutely essential to becoming a Christian. It marks those who are truly God's people and those who are not. Many people would say something like this. Yes, I've accepted Jesus as my savior, so I'm a Christian. But I'm just not ready to accept him as the Lord of my life yet. I have some things to work through. In other words, they claimed that they could have faith in Jesus and be saved and yet not repent of sin until they're ready. That is not correct. To have faith in Jesus at its core is to believe that he really is who he says he is. He's the crucified and risen king. He's conquered death. He's conquered sin. He has the power to save. Now, how could a person believe all of that, rely on it, and yet at the same time say, but I don't, I don't acknowledge him as the king of my life yet. That doesn't make any sense. Greg Gilbert says this in his book, What is the Gospel? Faith in Christ carries in itself a renunciation of that rival power that Jesus conquered, which is sin. And where that renunciation of sin is not present, neither is genuine faith in the one who defeated it. Until a person is ready to repent, hear me, they aren't ready to get saved. But I want to be balanced. It's important to realize, we don't overcorrect here, It's important to realize that repentance doesn't mean sinless perfection. Okay, repentance doesn't mean we get our act together and then we come to God. That's not repentance. Repentance doesn't mean we commit to keep our act together after we come to God. That's not repentance. Repentance doesn't mean we we, we won't struggle any longer with sin. Here's what repentance means. We'll no longer be at peace with our sin. We'll declare war against it. We'll dedicate ourselves to resisting it by God's power on every front in our lives. Repentance is simply this. You're still a sinner, but you think about sin different. You have a totally different perspective about sin. You have a totally different attitude about sin. You have a totally different heart heart posture about sin. You don't want to sin. You don't want to disappoint the Father. The sin that put Jesus on the cross, you feel that. You want to stay away from that. You don't like that. Until a a sinner is willing to have a different posture and attitude towards sin, they aren't ready to trust in the King Jesus until they're ready to make him king of their life. Listen, please. This is why we are not in this like major sprint race, 100 meter dash. To get as many people saved as we can get saved. 
Though our mission is all about getting people saved, we want to get people really saved. Are you with me? And so we view, we view our sharing of the gospel, our preaching of the gospel. And I do believe that the Holy Spirit can work in somebody's mind and heart in a way where, where if they walk into our service and hear a gospel message preached, they can walk the aisle and get saved. I believe that with all my heart. But at the same time, that's probably not the normative thing. And, and, and we shouldn't be getting all worked up when that doesn't happen every single Sunday. Instead, we should be praising God that, that gospel seeds were planted again. And the Holy Spirit had another opportunity to work on their heart again. And Brother David, Pastor David, got, got to meet with another person again and share the gospel. Not get worried about why aren't they getting it. No, thank God that they're still under the teaching of it. And let the, trust the Holy Spirit, trust the Holy Spirit and the word of God to do its work. Finish this phrase. Faith cometh by and hearing by. Trust it. Trust it. We're going to preach it, but we're going to let the Holy Spirit bring this to their point. Bring them to this point where they don't just have faith in King Jesus. Ask him into their heart, but they're ready to make him the king of their life. Until a person is ready to do that, they're they're just not ready to be saved. Letter B, repentance, not perfection, but taking sides. I like the way that's phrased. Because many new Christians, especially, or would-be Christians, struggle with this idea of repentance because they somehow expect that if they genuinely repent, sin will go away and temptation will stop. And then when it doesn't, they start doubting that they are really saved. So we have to remember that, that genuine repentance, please get this, is, is more fundamentally a matter of the heart's attitude towards sin than a mere change of behavior. Okay, here's the question to ask. Ready? Not this. Do I sin and how often do I sin? Don't ask that question. Here's the question. Do I hate sin and war against sin? Or do I cherish it and defend it? And undauntingly persist in it. That's the question to ask. Am I saved? Well, ask yourself. Don't ask yourself, rather. Do I sin? And how often do I sin? That will make you a miserable person. Because if you start looking at the scoreboard of your sin, we got righteousness on one side, and and we got unrighteousness on the other side, and you start keeping score of that, you will doubt your salvation week after week after week after week. So it's not just behavior, more fundamentally, it's this. Do I hate it? Do I fight against it? Am I warring against it? What is my attitude toward my sin? Can my sin continually bring me to this consequence and then I run back to it? Then I run back to it. Then I run back to it. Listen, friend, that is not repenting of your sin. That's where we call salvation into question. Whenever there's not genuine repentance. And it's not a one-time thing. It's not like I come to an altar pray and I genuinely repent. That's the starting line of, re- of believing and repenting. Sure, that you're, you're converted, you're justified in an instant. But genuine Christians, they live believing and repenting. Are you with me? That's how they live. That's how you know you're saved. One writer put it like this. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God 
And the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. It's powerful. Letter C, repentance has fruit. When a person genuinely repents and believes on Christ, the Bible says that he's given a new spiritual life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and you hath he quickened, that means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past, this is before you were, you were alive, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, everybody say, but God. Who is rich in mercy. For his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins. Hath quickened us. Made us alive together with Christ. That is by grace ye are saved. Somebody say amen to that verse. You were dead to God. You got saved. Now you're alive to him. When that happens. When new life enters into you. Things grow. Fruit is born. Jesus said in Luke 6, for a good tree bringeth not fruit corrupt, bring, or rather no share and live. Again, I'll never take for granted that everyone under the sound of my voice tonight, even on a midweek service, knows Jesus Christ personally. That is, you are believing in Christ and repenting of your sin. By the way, even if you come to church on a regular basis, that doesn't automatic, automatically qualify you as being saved. If you had to stand before God tonight, I wonder what you would plan to do or say to convince him to count you as righteous. What good deed or godly attitude will you you pull out in front of God? Will it be church attendance? Will it be baptism? Will it be family heritage? Will it be uh, your, your benevolence and kindness? What will you hold up and say, because of this God, I'm asking you to declare me righteous? I've got news for you. If you're truly a Christian tonight, the only thing that that, that you'll be able to say to God is this. God, do not look for any righteousness in my own life. Look at your son. Count me righteous, not because of anything I've done or anything I am, but because of him. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death that I deserve. And I have renounced all other trust. And my plea is in him alone. So justify me, oh God, because of Jesus. It's important that you know that faith in Christ alone is what makes you right with God. Not anything or anyone else. How does this affect the way we share the gospel? Well, if you're a Christian and want to articulate the gospel well, it's not enough to talk about God being their creator and man messing that up, but Christ paying for their sin. We must have the boldness given by the Spirit of God to call these people to a decision. You hearing me? It just can't be A, B, C. God bless you. Hope you get to the restaurant before the crowd gets there. There must be a bold and tactfully passionate plea to persuade them to trust in Jesus. To put their faith in Christ. And then to repent of their sin. I'm afraid that a lot of Christians are satisfied which is telling somebody about John 3.16. And they say, I've shared the gospel with them and now it's just up to God. Yeah, but did you actually call them to a decision? That doesn't mean they're ready. They might say no. 
You might even sense in your heart after that first engagement with them that they're not even ready for that question to be asked. But at some point, friend, if you're really going to share the gospel, you've got to look at that person you love so much in the eyeballs and you've got to ask them this question. Are you ready to accept Jesus? Yes. Amen, Henry. <laughs> Are you ready to repent of your sin? And, and you've got to explain what repentance looks like. You can't be in such a, you can't be afraid and intimidated to talk about the fact that they should be willing to repent. Because you're thinking in the back of your mind, oh, but this is going to really scare him off. That's where you need boldness from the Holy Spirit. The same boldness that he gave John and Peter that day when they preached on repentance. You need that. Now, that doesn't always come in the first meeting. We get that. That doesn't always come in the sixth meeting or the tenth meeting. But as the Holy Spirit leads and you feel like the soil is ready to receive that kind of persuasion, you must call upon the Holy Spirit to give you boldness and grace and strength to say, believe and repent. Amen? Amen. Now live, live. How does this affect the way we live? You all know me and my testimony about doubting my salvation and wrestling with that in the most severe way for about 10 or 11 years. So I want to apply it in this way. When, when we talk about faith tonight as being essential for true salvation, I think we can sometimes get that mixed up and can really start to hinder our assurance. What I mean by that is sometimes we think, and please hear me, if you've ever started with doubting your salvation, I, I think you'll find this helpful. Sometimes we think of our faith as the basis of our salvation. But did you know the Bible doesn't teach that faith is the basis? Jesus' work on the cross is the basis of our salvation. What is faith? It's the instrument of our salvation. Faith in terms of salvation simply means that we are fully relying on Jesus and his work on the cross to save us. If we start to overanalyze the size of our faith or the sincerity of our faith, we will inevitably start to doubt our salvation because we're trying to find assurance in something other than Jesus. Because sometimes, let's just admit it, our faith can be small and sometimes it can be large. Sometimes it can be sure, sometimes it can be unsure. Let me illustrate you, and if you're ever, um, illustrate this to you, if you're, if you're ever str- uh, struggling with your salvation, or if you're ever talking to somebody that's struggling with their salvation, I, you need to quote this to them. And I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's a great illustration. Kevin DeYoung. That's where I heard it. Imagine you're skating on a frozen lake. We know nothing of that in Southwest Kansas. So use your imagination. Let's say the ice is 12 inches thick, much thicker than necessary to be able to skate on safely. If you trust the lake to hold you and you begin skating, how sure of the ice do you need to be to prevent it from cracking? How sincerely must you be relying on the ice for the ice to remain sturdy? How much personal faith must you place in the ice in order for it to hold you above the freezing water? Those questions are absurd. Because however great your faith is in the ice, it's not your faith that is keeping you from falling in. It's the ice itself keeping you from falling in. Not what you think about the ice or how confident you are in the ice. We don't need to have greater faith 
to secure a spot in heaven and a weakening of our faith doesn't consign us to hell. If we're trusting in Jesus, the ice, it's his work that saves us. It's the object of our faith taking us to heaven, not the nobility of faith, the sincerity of our faith, the zeal of our faith, the size of our faith itself. Man, is that not comforting? As Christians, if we want a growing confidence and assurance of our salvation, we need to nurture our faith in the person, the work, and the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the moment of salvation, but every day after salvation. Amen?